When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And with help from Albertsons, it doesn't have to be the most stressful. Stop in for great deals on holiday favorites so you can stretch your budget and celebrate more. Pick up fresh, boneless, skinless chicken breasts or thighs, just $1.59 a pound when you buy a value pack of three pounds or more. And get General Mills cereal 10.7 to 13 ounces, selected varieties, $1.57 when you buy two. Tastier meals, sweeter deals, happier holidays. Albertsons, it's just better. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here, and I just wanted to drop in for a quick second to tell you that this podcast is really gaining popularity, and in order for us to continue growing like this, I'd love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. Plus, I'm always excited to hear feedback and continue to improve our content based on what you want to hear. I know I'm in. Are you? And don't forget, we've got a new premium show every Tuesday called Nick's Breakdown Weekly. For only 99 cents, you'll get a 25-minute broadcast quality show complete with video breakdowns, advanced stats, and a segment with a Nick's beat writer. This week, it's Jonah Ballo of Nick's.com. What is it like coaching across the globe? Can NBA players really improve their shot mechanics? How important is it to understand the reason behind what you're teaching? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today I'm pleased to bring on Ryan Pannon, who is an assistant coach of Hapol Jerusalem in, over in Israel. And uh, a guy that we, uh, I've been hooking up with on Twitter to talk a lot about coaching stuff. And I thought, let's get him on the show and get on the audio side and hear from him directly. So, Coach, thanks for joining us today. How's it, what time is it in Israel right now? Oh, it's uh, 9.48. So, okay. big time difference here between there. And I appreciate you having me on the show. Well, thank you for staying up so late to, uh, to talk to us. It's only almost you know, noon here in L.A. So, uh, I, uh, I make sure to just jump into it because... Uh, I guess my first question is, how long have you been coaching in Israel? I've been coaching here since uh, August 20th is, is when I came. Uh, I was hired in around August 1st by the team. And uh, uh, I was here for six weeks in, in May and June at a different point working with Omri Caspi. Aha. Now, is that the connection that got, you, uh, got their attention to want to hire you later? Yeah, it, that's definitely the main connection. Uh, the GM of our team used to represent Omri and, uh, when he was younger. And uh, so he came. We do uh, NBA training in Clearwater, Florida I, with David Thorpe. And uh, he came down to the workouts uh, two years ago. He liked what he saw. Obviously, Omri has really grown as a player since his year in Cleveland. He started working with us after that summer. And uh, the GM is, is very creative and outgoing, especially on the European stand front. 
and uh, he really liked what we were doing. We tried to make it work last year. It just wasn't able to, and uh, I was very, very lucky that he, he decided to hire me this year. Uh, Omri definitely pushed hard for it along with uh, other people. Uh, other people really helped me with it, so well, got really lucky. Oh yeah, let, let, let's talk about Omri Caspi for a minute because you know I was uh, hanging out with um, Vance Wahlberg last season a little bit, and we were talking about the dribble drive motion and what they were running and what he liked so much and what I've been espousing for so long um, as far as uh, offensive basketball is attacking on the catch, and he would just rave about how good Omri Caspi was at being able to on the move catch the ball, get the ball on the ground, and then go and attack. And I'm kind of curious your thoughts on that style, and was that the kind of stuff that you saw him working on to get so good at? Sure, we we spent a lot of time working on it, uh, working on Omri getting to the basket. You know, for his size, he's such a good ball handler, and he's really an underrated passer. And so we spent a lot of time in the summer working on quick attacks, which is what we what you call catching on the run. As soon as it hits your hands, attacking quickly at the point of attack, looking basically to get to the rim more, to draw more fouls. And uh, so we spent a lot of time this summer on it, also playing off shot fake attacks. He added some good things to his game as far as racing the floor, offense rebounding, moving without the ball, cutting, uh, figuring out how to score points when you're not the focal point of the offense or when plays aren't really being run for you. And uh, he had a great year last year, and he worked his tail off. When you're drilling that kind of stuff, like moving, moving off the ball or that, that, that stuff, um, are you just basically you know, reenacting the game scenario? Are, are, there, are there drills that you developed, or you just simply said, okay, put your head, head under the rim, there's the chair that's going to be the pin down, and just, you're going to come off of that 10 times in a row, and we're going to work on the footwork? A uh, combination of both. So whether it's lifting from the corner to the 45 in a weak side pick and roll situation and catching off the attack, or just a simple situation of a hit ahead or a drive and kick, uh, lifts and drifts, uh, so all kinds of different situations working on catching and playing off the attack. Okay. Um, and so that kind of brings us to a little bit of the, uh, the, the comparison between how they train and, and the fundamentals they use over in Europe and even the short time you've been there. Because I think the one thing we want, I want to sort ch- of check in with you before we get there is uh, most of your experience coaching has been in the States with, with David Thorpe in Florida. Is that right? Yeah. So I, I started out as uh, when I graduated high school, I had some opportunities to play low-level college. And my high school coach was very successful uh, business-wise, and his two sons were my two best friends. And he offered me an overpaid job at 18 years old to work for him in his mortgage industry, and I became an assistant coach to him for the high school I played at. So I started coaching at 18. And when I was 20 years old, uh, I, I looked up, I decided I wanted to coach full-time. I looked up David Thorpe in the white pages, and uh, I called him. He didn't call me back. Uh, I called him a few more times. Finally, I got on the phone with him, and uh, I just told him I, I knew he trained NBA players, and I just told him I, I'd do anything it took to, to work for him. And I started out intern interning for him for about three weeks, and, and then I became his assistant coach uh, after three weeks. And, and that same year at 20, I became the head high school coach at a school called Oldsmar Christian, uh, which... My former player and, and assistant had taken over for me, and he last year they were top 25 under armor sponsor team, really, really good. And uh, so that's how I started. I did that from 20 to 25, and then I 
took a junior college assistant coaching job. And then after that, I went to China. And after the year in China, uh, Coach Thorpe has got a full-time NBA consulting business where players hire him full-time throughout the year. And uh, I've worked, I've done that part-time with him since I was 20, flying out to different cities, working with the players on the floor throughout the season. And uh, after my year in China, I, I did that full-time and uh, with him. And then the next year I was in the D-League, then last year I was in Germany, and this year I'm in Jerusalem. Wow. Well, that is a, certainly a, uh, a, a, a well-traveled path you're taking to coach basketball. Uh, I'm curious, when you're working with, uh, with David Thorpe and the NBA guys, how much video are you going through? Is it mostly on court? I would say it's mostly on, mostly on court, but also watching video, uh, putting together video stuff for them during the season. Uh, but watching video is, is definitely part of it in the summer, but it's mostly on court. Yeah, I'm always curious to see because it seems to me that, like, obviously there is a benefit to sort of seeing what you're doing on the court and able to sort of intellectualize that. But then, obviously, the the real value is get your body moving into the correct positions or the adjustments that you want physically so they can learn how to do that, you know, know, with repetition. I'd imagine that must be the thought process, right? For sure, absolutely. You know, it's something we we may show it to them on on film, but one thing – David Thorpe is, uh, number one, he's a genius. He's, the guy's unbelievable. Uh, but he has an unbelievable ability to paint the picture in the player's head exactly what he wants him to do. And uh, he's a phenomenal teacher. I mean, anything, uh, when it comes to teaching, he's just a, a tremendous teacher. So he does such a great job of painting that picture and getting the players to realize exactly what he wants painting the picture in their head of what the game scenario is and, and what he has them working on, along with video, for sure helps. So painting the picture, you know, the thing I've noticed, and I know I was really guilty of this as a younger coach, um, was sort of over-talking and, like, never being able to kind of finish the thought and just you keep talking, keep talking. And, and I remember that my mentor would used to have to kind of nudge me, like, get, get done. So the painting the picture to me is an interesting uh, phrase that you used. Um, does it have anything to do with sort of economy of words and, and really being able to tightly explain what you want? Sure. We would say speaking in digestible sound bites is basically the terminology we would use. And uh, it has to be able to get your point across quickly, and it's a sound bite, and it has to be digestible. The players have to be able to understand it, digest it, and have the picture painted from it. You know, at that level, at the NBA level, uh, and even the interactions that I've had, it seems to me that you don't need very much at all. They are so good, right, and so in tune. Even the guys who you would think, oh, he doesn't play much, he must not be a very good player. Even those guys, to get to that level, seem like they're, it doesn't take very much time. It doesn't take very many repetitions for their bodies to quickly learn whatever technique you're trying to show. Yeah, I would say... You know, typical athletes aren't given the, the credit in terms of how smart they really are at their craft, understanding from a basketball standpoint. I mean, any player that's in the NBA more or less has a Ph.D. in basketball, so he's going to be able to understand and pick things up quicker than than the majority of players throughout the world even, you know, because they're such a high level, and they're coached by such great coaches on – all different teams. You know, if you think about any player, all of the different assistant coaches, player development coaches, head coaches they've worked with, 
on top of the personal people they hire on their own. Uh, you know, they're, they're around highly intelligent people already, uh, which is going to rub off on them for sure. And, you know, we talk a lot about shooting now and how much of a premium that is. I'm sure it's every league, everywhere you go, that the three-pointer is that important. So I'm kind of curious, did you guys, uh, when you're taking guys who are that, that top level, uh, are there mechanical things that you are willing to do to adjust their shot, or are you simply going to, you know, give them the confidence to shoot better without adjusting elbow, wrist, hip, feet, that kind of stuff? I would say it's a combination. Uh, number one, we're in the inspiration business. It's our job to inspire players to become something uh, that they didn't think they could achieve or something that they stopped believing they could achieve. And so take Omer Caspi after his year in uh, Cleveland. He shot the ball 32%. Uh, he went to Houston. We spent a lot of time that summer changing some of his mechanics. If you watch his shot when he was in Cleveland, he didn't fully extend his elbow. Uh, he didn't get great arc on his shot. His balance wasn't great. And we spent a lot of that summer correcting that things, but also getting him to believe he can be a 40% shooter. And almost telling him every day different ways uh, throughout drills, man, Omer, you're such a great shooter. You know, you're a great shooter. You're going to be a 40% three-point shooter. And uh, if you look at his year in Houston, he went up to 36%. Uh, but it, one of the things we tried to change between his year in Houston and his uh, first year in Sacramento is his footwork. Uh, like a lot of international players, he tries to go right-left on one side of the floor and left-right on the other side of the floor. And we tried to change that the summer before uh, Houston and getting him to solely go left-right. And for shooting, a lot of times with players, as you'll see, there's guys that – Hop in a two feet, shoot 40%. Guys that shoot left, right, 40%. Guys that use a combination of both, 40%. And so Omri felt really comfortable going right, left uh, into a shot. So about a little bit more than midway through his season in Houston, I broke it down. I broke down every three-point shot that he took, and he was shooting 29% when he went right, left, and he was shooting 39.9% when he went left, right, in any situation where he could choose, so not a pin down where he's using his inside foot, but more so transition, kickouts, hit aheads, anything like that. And uh, so then, finally, after we showed him the statistics, we got him to pretty much go left, right, and, and that was certainly a big part of consistency in terms of his shooting percentage rise. On top of his his work ethic is just fantastic and. You know, he's had two back-to-back -back years at 40%, and he had a career year uh, last year in Sacramento, his seventh year in the NBA, and he's never shot 40% ever, even when he was 18 years old in Maccabi Tel Aviv. So, uh, huh. it was... Now, if the, and just, just, it, it seems pretty clear, if you, were to, if you were to see the numbers were better at right-left, then you would have said, okay, get rid of the left-right. It's just it simply a numbers thing when you're analyzing For sure. I, I think... You can, you can look at a player that becomes, what are you comfortable with? You know, so you could say, okay, I'm comfortable hopping into two feet, but if you shoot 20% hopping into two feet, and you shoot 40% going left, right, you should look at eliminating the hopping into two feet and solely stick with left, right. Yeah. And uh, oh, I, I think... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, what I was going to say was, I, I've, I've heard that, like, for the Mavericks... Uh, Mike does the same thing where they do left right even when they're going to their left 
which would normally be a right-left inside pivot foot for a righty shooter. And I started really looking at that, and I think for the same reason. They want it to be consistent. They want your footwork to be the same every time. And when you look at the way they shoot it that way, and a lot of guys will do it, it doesn't seem any different, like any worse or any better than the inside pivot foot one, too. So I love when I hear that kind of stuff because to me it's like, well, the only reason why we have that, those notions is because that's how we were taught 20 years ago, right? And that's how they were taught 20 years before that without ever really looking at it and saying, you know what, it might not be like this, this hard, fast rule that we should be sort of forcing guys to learn. I, I think what's really important in any times with player development for coaches when they're teaching is know your why. Why are you teaching this? Why does it work? Why will it help the player? And you have to be able to have reason and logic behind why you're teaching. If you just say, well, this is the way that I was taught, or this is the way that so-and-so does it, and he's a great shooter, it doesn't work like that. Because uh, you can look at all of the great shooters throughout the NBA, and they all have some similar things about their shot, but they also all have different things about their shot. Okay, so here's what I'm here for. I'm here for the universal truths. I believe that we can find, we can find truths about the jump shot that we can all either agree on or sort of recognize in most, in most of the sure. great shooters. Even though everyone, you know, I talk to a lot of NBA guys who always say it's, it's, it's completely dependent on the player and all the, everything is variable. But in my mind, I don't know. There's a couple of things that I would really like to have. So uh, let me throw it out to you, Ryan. Um, are there any universal truths that you really must see? Now, I know you mentioned uh, that Omri didn't extend his arm all the way. Is that a universal truth to you as far as shooting from distance? First off, I'll say this. In, in terms of shooting mechanics, uh, think of everyone's players like a fingerprint. It's unique to them. Okay, You can throw in Steph Curry, J.J. Redick, Omri Caspi, Kevin Martin, who I've worked with uh, for 12 years. Uh, Reggie Miller, Ray Allen, they all shoot the ball differently. They don't shoot the ball the same way. They all have – nobody would ever teach to shoot the way that Kevin Martin does. But he's one of the greatest shooters in the NBA. He's he's a high, high, high-level shooter. He's, he's a special, special shooter. And But for the most part, yes, I believe in extending your elbow. I believe in finishing with your hand in the center rim. I believe in high arc on your shots. Uh, so I believe in landing with balance and, and not being all over the place. Uh, you know, last year, if you look at LeBron James, uh, he had his worst shooting year from three point since he was a rookie. And, uh, David Thorpe was doing a ESPN breakdown for sports center on his shooting. So he asked me to break down all of the three point attempts that he took last year. And, uh, so I broke it down to try to find some, reason for why he wasn't shooting as well and so what i found if you eliminate all of his half court attempts or when he catches it with one second uh the numbers were staggering he shot was like i could pull it up and give the exact numbers but it was 17 or 18 percent when he landed on one foot and it was 40 percent when he landed on two feet and over 35 percent of his attempts he was landed on one foot and so his balance was was really bad so i think those are big universal truths to 99.9% .9 of players. If you have a guy that's shooting 45% that doesn't fully extend his arm, uh, do you change that? I, I don't know. <laughs> right. I mean, 45%, damn. I mean, like with Kevin Martin, for instance, that was one of those extreme examples where uh, I remember looking at one of his shot charts, though, 
And it felt like he really couldn't shoot from the right side of the floor with the way he shoots. And, you know, the way across his body, it's easy to get on the left side, you know, the elbow and the hip aligned. And uh, did you see that? Am I, am I crazy in saying that? Or I feel like that was, I, there was a big drop-off. I can't say that I've seen that, but I also can't say that you're wrong. Okay, fair, that's, fair enough. That's not something uh, – that's not something – you know, I've I've worked with six or seven guys that have shot forty percent in the NBA, and he's a special, special shooter. Okay, fair enough. And and so, um, you know, that that's that is the thing. I think when I was younger, I was I I, I have actually called some of my old players to apologize for torturing them as much as I used to do because of some of the things that I learned that uh, you know at a high level that we're supposed to teach, you're supposed to force these kids to do is shoot jump shots. And then you realize after enough film study that, um, you know, those are not what the good shooters really do. Um, and so uh, let me ask you this one, because the, the arm straightening is a big one. Like a guy like Danny Green, um, who doesn't straighten his arm out of the way, you know, wasn't an elite shooter, almost won the MVP of the finals on into the base of the shooting, right? However, he really has kind of struggled uh, over the course of several seasons in a way that my thought is, is that maybe because we're shooting so many more threes than we ever have before, perhaps we need to look at a much bigger macro view of shooting where the, you, your slump might last across seasons, you know, if you don't have great fundamentals. And you might be able to get hot for like those 60, 70 games you're playing. Does that resonate with you at all? I think there's a lot of things that go into shooting slumps. A uh, big part of it is the quality of shots that you're receiving one year can change to the next year. If you're receiving more open, uncontested shots from driving kick situations as opposed to simple reversals without forcing a defensive shrink, and now your shot's being contested, your shooting percentage is going to drop significantly. So I think a lot of that has to do with, in terms of when you see a player shooting percentage, be great one year, drop to the next. There's a lot of variables that go into that. Maybe his, maybe it was his work ethic all summer long. Maybe it was the quality of shots that he's receiving. Maybe it has to do with the offense that they're playing in. Maybe it has to do with the way teams are now defending them, which is obviously going to dictate his and, and change his shooting percentages. Yeah, that's true. I, I think the actions from one season to the next, different players and different system, you know, the, the shot could be completely different in a way that that's that you're right. There's a lot of factors and why it's another reason why it's hard to trust a shot chart because I need to, there's not enough information there for me to figure out what that shot was. Um, the feet though, do sound like one of those things that everybody I talk to who works with NBA guys focuses on that. Because I mean, I have to imagine that's probably one of the easier things you can fix. Whereas if you're, I don't, I don't know if you'd ever really want to get into like angle of the elbow and the wrist and all that stuff at that level because that could cause a lot of pain for a lot longer than maybe fixing the feet. Even though, in arguably, you can argue that landing on one foot, for instance, that's after the shot's released. Well, how could that possibly affect the shot? So, what would your answer be when someone says that? If you're landing on one foot, what is the reason behind it? Why are you landing on one foot instead of two foot? So that means that now the angle of your body, so the balance that you're landing on, is completely different. If you're landing on one foot, typically your shoulders are going to be a little bit further back, which means you've slightly faded on your shot, which, as we all know, is going to change your shooting percentage. And so I think that heavily goes into it. Most of the time, if you are landing on one foot, very rarely do you see a player it's landing with the same balance and at the same angle on two feet as if he does on one foot. And that's, you know, what I saw when I was uh, looking at LeBron's study. He was just 
fading back more. And so as a result, he was kicking out his right leg and landing on one foot. Right, probably letting the right leg be the uh, anchor so that he doesn't fall all the way backwards. You know, it's funny. There is one spot where we, where I've seen that become a fundamental where if you're going to your right hard and you now need to pull up, um, a lot of players, even naturally, will let that right foot come up to control the amount of turn you're going to have in the air, you know, to get that alignment right. And that, I've seen that, and I actually will – um, I certainly won't correct that. I will. I will. That, that's. I will allow it <laughs> when I see that because I've seen I mean, that uh, uh, work. I would say that's also a completely different shot than what you're looking for from your three point shot. Right. So. Okay. So so most because I guess right the point is is that most of LeBron's shots from three for instance are probably like spot up. He's not. He's not coming full speed off the dribble in one direction pulling up. No, he's you know breaking his man down maybe off the dribble, pulling up or catching and shooting in those situations. Well, before we get too more too wonky on this shooting stuff, because that's one of my you know fetishes. Um, I, I, I ask, okay, well, you know as it should be, but let me ask you this. Uh, although you would be surprised by how many coaches that I do encounter that sort of don't see shooting as anything more than just you just shoot it, you know, and and there's you know elbow in whatever. But um, yeah, everyone, yeah, they don't know any different. Right. That's why. I mean, you you know, that's it's crazy to think. Uh, you know, there's a reason. Uh, there's a reason Jason Kidd went from being a non-shooter to a shooter, and Grant Hill, and all of these other guys that have found success. Kawhi Leonard, obviously, working with Chip England. Uh, there's a change. I mean, sir, you can have a certain amount of growth in your shooting percentage by your repetition and how many shots that you're going to shoot a day, but. But having the mentality of, oh, just make 500 shots a day, that's not something every player should do. You know, there's many players that expend a lot more energy shooting than others. And as a result, if you're taking 500 shots, now the amount of energy you're expending, you're going to start shooting with poor mechanics. And it's going to have a negative impact, in my opinion. Absolutely. Well, uh, let me ask this one, because this one's always in my mind. I'm kind of curious your thoughts because uh, it, it kind of touches upon that. Oh, well, if the ball's already gone, how can it possibly have an effect? And that is the eyes. The eyes, uh, uh, when they follow the ball uh, on or after the release. Um, and I bring it up only because the list of players that do this, that are good shooters, is very, very long. And you never really see it taught, per se, but I'm starting to wonder if there is something there. Now, of course, the argument is it doesn't really matter because it's after you're out of your hand. But I don't know. When I've seen, like you say, like when you're landing on one foot, your body, there's so much going on with the way your mechanics go on from before the shot to after the shot that, that um, the signs are there, that things happen in one, you know, in, a, in a, a bunch of different linked chains. So what's your thought on the eyes following the ball? You know, it's it's very interesting. So I've, I've obviously I've I've spent twelve years working for David Thorpe, who is, in my opinion, the best player development guy, hands down. I've tried to go out of my way to see anybody that is considered good, and uh, not to say that there aren't other people that are very very good. He is special. Uh, so I say that to see this one one of the best shooting coaches I've ever seen is Andy Enfield, who's oh an LA guy. Uh, Andy is a tremendous, tremendous shooting coach. He's he's really good, and you know Andy. Uh, I'm close with Andy. I have a lot of respect for him and in terms of shooting. His his mentality and the way that he wants to teach is, is completely different than David Thorpe's. David Thorpe's mentality is 
more or less he's going to take your shot and help you become a much improved shooter with your shot. Now he's going to make minor mechanical changes. Like with Kevin Martin, uh, his shot today is different than it was 12 years ago, but it's very same. We, we made minor changes and grooved different habits over 12 years. Andy's mentality is more or less to try to get everyone to shoot the perfect shot way, uh, which is the way he shoots. And I don't know, have you ever seen him shoot? Uh, not, my mind's eye, I don't have anything, nothing's coming to I've mind. seen him give a 45-minute clinic where he doesn't miss. He's, he's unbelievable. He's, he's, he holds some college records that still haven't been broken in terms of shooting percentage. He played Division Three at John Hopkins. And so Andy will tell his story about when he was a child, his thumb used to get into the ball and how he's a terrible shooter, and he shoots with perfect mechanics. So he told me he took a 1,000 shots uh, with his eyes on the rim, and he took a 1,000 shots following the ball. And the difference was by one or two shots. It was basically statistically the same. So okay. for him, he won't teach one way or another once again it comes down to what you're comfortable with. Um, unless he has changed that in the last two years. Uh, so I, I can't say it's something that, that, I've, that I have taught one way or another. Once again, if you're comfortable following the ball, which is the way that I shot it, I always followed the ball, and someone tried to teach me to look at the rim, and it just, for me, it, it wasn't natural. To then have to focus on what I've done for so long from looking at the ball to look at the rim, it disrupted me personally. Right. So. Now and by the way, like it, it's not the same shot. I think I mean maybe if you took enough shots over enough time, it would feel uh, comfortable again. But I can no one I know who like shoots at the rim and then starts to watch the ball will ever f- say that that shot feels the same. And it could be right. mental, but I, I just, that, that's always been my point where it's like people will argue that it isn't any different, but there is something there mentally. And I, you know I've been slowly kind of developing that the idea that like maybe there is something to it just because. Like every good shooter, whenever I'm like, that's what I'm looking for now. Is like they just they just follow the ball. I feel like more so. Andy Reddick is the one guy, who, and he yelled at me on Twitter the other day or the other week uh, about it because somebody asked me, and I guess they tagged him uh, on Twitter with it. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna have to check it out. And he was like, do you don't have to check it out. I look at the rim the entire time. I'm like, okay. So then someone followed up again, and they and I, I didn't realize he was tagged again. And I, you know, I. I, I meant to say that yes, like he's laser focused on the rim. Turned out, I, the way I wrote it made it sound like he was watching the ball, and he starts yelling at me. He's like, he's never. He he claims he has never ever ever watched the ball in his life, which just sounds crazy to me. But the point being that he's probably the only guy that I've seen more recently that I feel like doesn't watch the ball. So I'm really mm-hmm. intrigued by that, and I just don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's science or if it's just a, you know some sort of weird myth that I'm coming up with. But I, there's something there. And how about you? When did you start to watch the ball, or do you have any feeling on why you did that? I I don't. It's something that my playing days are long behind me. Uh, <laughs> but I, I was uh, a pretty good shooter at one point in time, and I, I just I always watched ball. And I had a coach try to teach. Oh, you got to watch the rim, and it completely disrupted me. And uh, completely, I, I didn't like it, and uh, I just didn't do it. You know, it wasn't <clears throat> wasn't going to be something I was going to change. And uh, you know, like I said, I, I to me, I think that's one thing. Like you said, it maybe it's a mental thing, but it's something where you feel comfortable. Now, if the statistics are against it, you know, if I watch the rim and, and during the game on a shot, and I'm shooting sixty percent, and I'm following the ball shooting forty percent, one way or another, I would change it. 
Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm just I, I'm a big believer in facts, statistics, the analytics behind it. Uh, feeling comfortable is is really, really, really important to shooters because, as you know, most shooters are are very mental. You know, uh, almost every shooter I've ever been around is mental in terms of their work ethic, their drive, their habits, their commitment. You know, for for Kevin, for 12 years, before he would go on a flight out to L.A. to do something with uh, Jordan, he was, you know, sponsored by Jordan, he had to come to the gym and shoot. And then he would take a red-eye fly to get back to get in the gym and shoot. And most of his seasons, unfortunately, were over April 16th. He didn't make the playoffs very often. And he was in the gym shooting by May 1st. And, you know, it was just his habits. And and so if a, to me, if a shooter feels comfortable with something and the facts are behind it, if you, you then fact check it, I wouldn't change it one way or another. Sure. And the other universal truth I think I have for shooting is that it's rhythm. The rhythm is really the key, I think, to be able to, like, to shoot, uh, especially from distance. And the, the adjustments that I've been able to make to help other people shooting-wise when they've been about rhythm, when the ball begins to move up and then finishes, has been, I think, the most effective thing. And the other funny thing is, is that like a lot of times I'll start now. I'm like, there's this kid I'm working with now who's, you know, got all the potential in the world to be an NBA player. And and I asked him, I said, are, are you a good shooter? And he kind of looked away. He's like, no, 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 not really. You know, and and I, I said, OK, let, let's take two. Are you a good shooter? And he looked at me. He's like, uh, yeah. I'm like, OK, take three. Are you a good shooter? And finally, I got him even to say yes. You know, and I almost felt like. And by the way, he got out there. He's a lefty. He just starts stroking the ball over the place. It was crazy. I'm like, why are you lying to me? <laughs> you are a good shooter. And I feel like the rhythm and the and the mental approach to, to shooting is is might be the most important thing of any of those things. For sure, I, I think mental is so important. I think confidence. I think the confidence that somebody has in you makes a major impact as well. You know, if we're looking at right now what, what Marcus Gasol has done in 11 games in the NBA, he's made more threes than he had in 568 games. Mm-hmm. And uh, one could say he's always been a good shooter. And there's a huge difference in taking shots where if you miss, you're going to get yelled at or you miss, you're going to come out or you miss and your teammates are going to look at you compared to taking shots where if you miss, your coach is going to say, hey, great shot, you shoot the next one. And if you don't shoot the next one, I'm going to yell at you then. And if your teammates are telling you, hey, man, keep shooting, you know, there's such a big difference in terms of the pressure and the mental side behind it. And, and I think that's a big part of becoming a successful shooter, having a coach that also believes in you and believes that you can achieve that, especially in terms of development. And, you know, Marcus Saul was 18% uh, in his previous seven, seven seasons in 568 games, and now he's 40% with made more threes. And uh, it's remarkable. You know, it's, it, that says a big thing about development. It says a big thing about how much of an impact uh, a coach can have on you sure. in terms of your confidence in shooting. I, I and, also, for, and I think that owning it yourself is important too because uh, the language that you use outwardly can also affect and reprogram the brain, I feel like. I've kind of gotten into that a little bit in the last several years in a way that um, it sounds new agey for the way you want to use your language. But 
uh, whenever I talk to guys who say, oh, I hope I can, you know, uh, I hope I can get 20 points tonight or it'd be nice if I could whatever. I'm like, no, no, no. You need to start saying I will. Now, it doesn't have to be I will win a championship this year. That seems that's there's too many variables. But it's like, you know, I will get around that that pin down every time and I will uh, catch the ball in rhythm and when I shoot it. And I feel like or I am a good shooter. Those are the kind of things I feel like that you can reprogram the brain to give yourself the confidence as well. And, I, and, and then the opposite being that it, it can really be detrimental if it creeps in and the language that you're using out, outwardly can creep into your brain. And then that affects your, uh, your, your, your body mechanics, right? Absolutely. So anyway, that was a good. That was one of my one of my new age things I like to talk about now. And I think like the kids look at me a little bit funny, but they get it. And after a little bit of time, it really helps. And by the way, I'm sure maybe you know this too. It helps with coaching, because there are negative keywords out there that you could say that you just you don't even mean it. Doesn't even realize you're saying it. But you know, it's like that 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 player might remember that remark that they rubbed them the wrong way for the rest of the season, right? Or uh, for the rest of their life, uh, you know, we we have a player on our team who's a, a tremendous shooter. He's he's a bigger guy, he's a tremendous shooter, and he'll even beat some of our guards in uh, three point contests. And uh, he d- he does not shoot the basketball. If he catches it within fifteen feet, it's a floater. He he won't shoot a jump shot. And I asked him the other day. I said, you know, why why don't you shoot the ball? You're a great shooter. And he told me, he said, uh, you know, when I was younger, this coach told me don't ever shoot the basketball. And ever since then, it has completely impacted me. And, and I think sometimes as coaches, we don't realize the impact that we can have on a player. And if we're in the inspiration business, it's our job to inspire players and get them to believe that they can be great. And to me, every player, if a guy isn't a good shooter today, but you believe he can be a great shooter, you know, you have to have a, a whole development plan. Every player should have three development plans, and those have to go into place. And I think it's really, really important. And most coaches, uh, the other thing we want to think about is is in continuing to ignite the passion within a player. You know, we have the ability. I'm sure you know players. I know players. Some of the players from when I was a high school coach that went on to college, their coaches killed their love for the game and uh to me you know sometimes you don't even think uh, a former player of mine today who was a big man in college he was a leading scorer leading rebounder for two years the offense went through him and since college five years ago he still won't t- touch a ball to this day because of his college coach and it's crazy and it's uh we don't always think about the words we say and the impact that they'll have so yeah absolutely and uh and I know, you know, especially as a young coach, I, I, I had a lot, a lot less um, connection to that. And because luckily I had some coaches that were pretty like Bobby Knight style stuff. And um, it didn't kill the love of the game, thankfully, uh, for me. But certainly, yeah. I, and some of the former players that I've had have come back and, and have, have expressed a little bit of that um, in a way that, uh, you know, you have to be able to take that to heart and learn. Um, I mean, I remember talking with a guy who was a Tony Robbins disciple. So you know Tony Robbins, right? The guy who speaks, to, you know, he's the he's that guy with the big the big teeth, and he talks to all the corporate people about uh, language. And he, he's he's a big language guy, and like and how and he's a consultant, and he talks and he makes millions of dollars going around the country talk, talking to people. So, uh, but one of the guys, his disciple, was talking to me about how he can I can apply that to coaching. He's like, you know, um, do, do yourself a favor. 
It's like choose a word or a phrase, and then when something good happens in a practice, don't use it all the time, but every once in a while, just sprinkle it in there. Use that phrase and when something good happens. And so that year, I, I chose Gangnam Style. Remember that song when, when that came out? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, you know uh, high post, backdoor, bounce pass, layup, you know, I throw the whistle. That, that was Gangnam Style. That was great, right? And they all laugh at me because I'm saying it wrong. Well, sure enough, halftime of the huge game that we have against our rival, we play a you know, home and away every year. We're down. Everyone's upset. And I somehow was able to use that, for, that word, the phrase Gangnam Style. You wouldn't believe it. They all sat up, their eyes opened, they kind of half smiled, and we went out there and like, had an awesome third quarter. And I thought that that was kind of like cheating almost because you kind of can almost program that positive response out of your players. And I, I, Have you ever seen, do you work on that kind of technique stuff you know, consciously? Sure. I mean, I, I, for me personally, because when I was a player, I wasn't very good. And uh, what coaches would say to me could completely make or break me. I was a mental midget. And uh, one game, at, you know, I was having a great first half in high school. And the second half uh, started, uh, referees called a terrible call. I let it get into it them. Then my coach was saying something to me, and I got yelled at and destroyed me the rest of the game. And so because I was uh, mentally weak, more or less, as a player, it really helped me as a coach in picking and choosing the words that I used with players. And to me, I think uh, each player is like a lock. And as a coach, we have, you know, if you look at your keychain, how many keys are on there? Each key is not going to open up every door. And for each player, you have to try a different key, and you have to keep trying that key to figure out what unlocks them. And I've had players where you've got to get on them and, and yell at them and cuss at them. And I've had other players where they literally take it to heart if you call them soft or whatever it may be. You know, you have to to choose your words for each individual player and coach each individual player differently while collectively building a team. Uh, yeah, not easy. <laughs> and I think that sometimes you, you just might not have a key. There might be a player, right, that just sort of – you have, you've run out of keys and you, there's just, you can't – and another coach might be able to do it, but right, I, sure. I have to imagine that happens sometimes. No, I, it does, but I think what happens for sure, but I think what happens a lot of times in coaching, especially at the youth level, is uh, coaches are too quick to throw away the keys. And instead of just continuing to try to unlock it, unlock it, unlock it, and uh, until there, there's no more keys to try, too many coaches get frustrated and throw away the key too yeah. early. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a really patently against football these days for a lot of reasons. But one of the, the things that really got me off of it originally was uh, with the high school I was coaching at, um, the, the coaches there were so old school mentality of like browbeating and screaming and hitting and pushing and disrespecting in this effort to like make, you know, their players tougher. And I just felt like, you know, not that I'm like it's soft or you shouldn't be that way, but it just felt like there's got to be a better way to reach players and motivate them to play as hard as they can without that kind of, you know, method that, that, that's been, you know, practiced for the last 60, 70 years. And it really kind of put, you know, put me off in a way that, um, you know, there's, there is. And I think sometimes coaches might not sort of understand that and feel like, oh, they have, the only way to be tough is to really just get in their face and scream at them and, 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 and put them down until they get tough. I'm a big believer in this. And, you know, I, I was a high school coach, head high school coach for five years. I was an assistant for two years. I 
30 players go on and play Division One, and we had a bunch of kids from terrible backgrounds and uh, kids that were not going to qualify academically. So uh, I had a rule when I was a high school coach that if you didn't have a 2.7 core GPA, you had to do summer school, just like they do in college. It, it wasn't an option. It was mandatory. And what I found at the high school level, the NBA level, uh, the D-League, China, Germany, Israel, it's the same everywhere. The harder you love the player and the harder you love the person, the more you can coach them, the harder you can coach them. If you really love the the person and you spend time to get to know them, their family, their kids, whatever it may be, what's going on in their life, and you really make them feel like you care about them, you can coach them really hard and you can get on them and you can yell them because they know players aren't stupid. They've been around people their whole lives that are looking to take advantage of them. And if they know you truly care about them and their success and their life and them as a person, they'll let you coach them and they'll let you coach them hard. You can get on them and you can yell at them. But if you don't take time to invest in the person, you're a fraud. You're a fraud. And they're not going to let you coach them. That, that, that very, very good, very kind, uh, wise words there for sure. And I, you know, it, that takes time too, right? You can't just suddenly, you know, be in their lives and understand who they are and connect with them after a week, right? This is the kind of thing you get to build over time. Got to break down walls, and sometimes, you know, for for some players, they've been burned by other coaches, and you know, anytime you join a team for the first time, it's like, all right, you know, here's this dude. You know, they don't know that you care about them. And, you know, it starts spending time. To me, like, I think one of the biggest things as a coach, especially if you're trying to develop a personal relationship with the player, is being available 24 hours. You know, anytime you want to go, you want to go shoot 9 o'clock at night, yeah, we go shoot. Because then when it's just you and them in the gym, they're going to start telling you, oh, my kid had a presentation today. Oh, really? Tell me about it. What did they do their presentation on? And if you're asking these personal questions, which allows them to open up when it's one-on-one in their safe zone. I mean, think about for any player, their safe zone is the court. And that's where they're going to open up more. That's where they let their guard down. Especially if it's just you and them one-on-one. They're more willing to tell you what's going on in their life and tell you about their kids, the great moments, the sad moments, what's going on with their family if someone's sick. And you can really develop that bond because if you're with them in the gym at 9 o'clock at night, 10.30 at night, 12 o'clock at night, 7 o'clock in the morning. They know you care about their on-court success, and they know that you care about them as a person. Absolutely. I mean, that's, yeah, I love it. And, that, and that's the thing that when, you know, I remember when I first heard uh, Coach Thorpe on a podcast probably like five years ago when he talked about you know, Royal Jelly uh, was his term. Which, he loves Royal Jelly. Yeah. And, and you know, the coach, coach is supposed to come on the show. We're not, I'm going to save the Royal Jelly for him. But, uh, but certainly what you're talking about is basically that, is that they, you know, um, you, you need to be able to find that way to, uh, to positively affect them, even if it seems like there's, there aren't that, there's, there, there's always that path to find, to connect, and to, to coach well. Like, I, 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 when I took that to heart my last couple of years, you know, the worry could very well be, oh, you're going to have a, a soft team, right? Because you're not, you're not yelling at them all the time and you're not telling them this. And I'm like, well, you can watch my – no one ever said my team was soft. They, those, my kids played hard, and I didn't have to sit there screaming and yelling. Like, you know, I, I think Brad Stevens is a pretty good model for me, even though I was probably 
not closer to Bobby Knight, but in that realm when I was a younger coach, uh, coaching the younger, you know, the JV high school stuff and whatever, um, and as an elder statesman. But certainly, um, I think that there's a lot more value going forward, especially with the culture the way it is now, uh, with the Brad Stevens approach or, the, or David Thorpe approach or what you described, uh, without having any fear of your teams not playing as hard as they can. Uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, what is shown, what I was able to figure out, and on a much minor level compared to Brad Stevens, who is phenomenal. I mean, he's he's really, really special. I, I went through and I broke down a bunch of uh, end of game, side out of bounds, base on out of bounds plays. He's, he's – We have. We've, we've all done that. <laughs> because when you're watching the stuff that he runs, you're like, I will never be as good as him no matter what I do. <laughs> it's <laughs> It almost demotivates you. But – you know, what I found is, as a coach, as a high school coach, which, honestly, coaching high school is my favorite level. Uh, it's it's the, the impact you can have on, on a high school player is special. And what I found is, if your players love you, and they love playing for you, they will battle for you. They will go to war. And I think using fear as motivation has has limited. Uh, and obviously, Bobby Knight had a ton of success, and and obviously, even a lot of his players will defend him, and they love him to death. And obviously, he has players that 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 don't like him. Nobody, there's not a coach in the world that can knock the success he has and, and the coach that he is. But uh, I think, especially more so today, if you use fear as a motivation, the fear is not going to last. At some point, the players are no longer going to be afraid of you. But if you use love as a motivation, love lasts. And I think a perfect blend for that. Uh, is the coach at St. Anthony's? He's you know he he loves his guys. I mean he loves them. He coaches the hell out of them. And I'm such a big Bob Hurley fan. Uh, he practiced in my gym for a week when I was a high school coach, and I was trying to take him out to dinner and pick his brain. And you know to watch his team practice for a week was an unbelievable experience for me. But you know. I, so many times people only see the harder side of him. But, man, that guy loves his players, and he will do anything and give up anything for them to become successful people. Okay. That, 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 no, one can, no one can dispute that without question, and whether or not his methods are pretty – can get extreme, but certainly um, you know, the results are there as well. So, well, before we wrap it up, uh, I did want to uh, t- talk as briefly as we can about – just sort of, are, are there fundamentals that are being taught that you've discovered over there or any kind of methods that are interesting to you that you hadn't seen before that are, are going on either in China or Germany or Israel compared to here? I, I wouldn't say necessarily the fundamentals outside of the, the pick and roll reads. Um, I would say that their, their players are, the players internationally in Europe are, are far ahead of the American players in terms of pick and roll reads because the American players at the high school level are so athletic, and uh, most coaches don't really know how to teach uh, the pick-and-roll reads, the pick-and-roll spacing, then the automatic movements as a guard's coming off the pick-and-roll, what the two players or the one player behind the pick-and-roll are doing, how they're spacing, how they're lifting the spacing required uh, from all five players. You know, great pick-and-roll teams are playing pick-and-roll with five players. It's a five-player movement, not two players moving. And... Uh, so they're taught at a younger age really how to utilize the pick and roll 
and make the right reads and the skill set that goes into uh, using pick and rolls. Um, it's so interesting, you know, our game in America, basketball in America is played off speed and athleticism, for sure. And here, everything they want to do is a jump stop. They want to jump stop before everything, whether it's on the catch or if they're going full speed to change direction. They always want to slow down and jump stop and protect the basketball. And uh, so it's, it's very interesting, some of the things that they do. But I wouldn't say that the fundamentals are, are necessarily taught different. It's just a different game. Uh, the players here can't play off the athleticism that the American players can. You know, the, the difference in athleticism is staggering from American players at 16, 17 years old and the European players at 16, 17 years old. So as a result, they have to be a little bit more fundamentally sound in terms of what they're doing and what they're utilizing. And they don't have a guard that can come off a pick and roll and just destroy you with his blazing speed and athleticism. So they have to be able to come off and play with patience and get the guard on his back and hesitate and make the weak side pass to the 45 and, you know, really study where the tag on the roll is coming from and how to pick it apart. Uh, so I'd say that's really the biggest difference um, in terms of the fundamentals that's taught and really the biggest difference between the international game and the American game. I mean, in terms of the way they break down the pick and roll to every part of where every player is positioned at the start of the pick and roll and at the end of the pick and roll is going into complete detail. And then the spacing, you know, if, for us, our, our coach uh, was the Italian national team coach uh, for six years. He was a head coach in Siena, uh, which is a team in Italy. And he won six straight Italian championships. And this is, his team wasn't the biggest budget. The most famous team that most teams will know is uh, Armani Milano. And he coached in Siena. And his, man, the guy's an unbelievable teacher in terms of pick and roll and what he wants and who he wants behind the ball and what position, the spacing. And if you are even slightly off, he's going to let you know in a positive way. He's, he's a phenomenal, phenomenal coach and a, even a better person. He's unbelievable. And then in terms of the automatics, so the spacing behind the ball, as the ball's getting into the paint, how the players are lifting, and who's behind the ball, and the decision makers, and what happens from there, it's, it's really amazing. Wow, well, I, you know, I, maybe one day I can come out there. I want to watch that because uh, you know uh, I am. I, I will plead a little ignorance as far as teaching pick and roll as well. As, aside from just running it live and letting them sort of learn the progressions as they happen and practice in a safe environment, and then hopefully the games turn out okay. Uh, because as a triangle offense coach, we have all the automatics, but they're all based on ball movement. Um, and I, that's fascinating to me that you can create the same sense of automatics off of the pick and roll as well. Uh, and this teacher, break it down, uh, right? Two line drills, three line drills, and just keep doing it. That's, we, we start most practices with our pick and roll reads or automatics broken down into two on zero, three on zero, four on zero, five on zero, where you're going, how you're lifting, the spacing behind it, the timing behind it. And who's going to be there in terms of forcing how the defense is going to rotate and then playing off how they're going to rotate. And uh, Coach is just, he, he's special. And we're also fortunate. We have some, some pretty good players with Amari Stoudemire and Curtis Durrells and Torrance Kinsey and 
Sean Jones, different guys with uh, NBA experience, Jerome Dyson, who played at UConn, Travis Peterson, who played at uh, Samford. So it's we've got a good blend of, of great guys, and Coach uh, does an unbelievable job teaching. Great. How is Amari doing, by the way? He's, he's doing well. Uh, number one, he is as good of a player he's ever been in his life. He's an even better person. I mean, if you can imagine him being in Israel, uh, everyone wants to talk to him. Everyone wants to take pictures. Everyone wants to autograph. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough working with Coach Thorpe to, to be around, to work with 50 different NBA players. And all of them are, were great guys. If little kids come up to them, they smile. But at some point, they usually have had enough, whether you're out to dinner. I've never seen Amari say no. Not only does he not say no, the smile he gets on his face when a kid asks him for an autograph, he makes that kid feel like he is the most important person in the world. Uh, he's an unbelievable person, special, special guy. Um, he's playing well for us. You know, there's an adjustment period from the NBA to, uh, to Europe in terms of the traveling rules and the spacing. There's no defense of three seconds. The physicality that is allowed here is completely different than the NBA. The spacing is completely different than the NBA uh, because of it with the three-point line. Uh, but he's he's had some really big games for us, a really one, and uh, he's, he's one of the most professional players in terms of, to this day, he's 34. He just had a birthday yesterday. He shows up early or stays late every day. And oftentimes, he's the first guy on the floor. And oftentimes, he's the last guy on the floor. And the joy he has from playing basketball still at 34 is inspiring. I mean, the smile he gets on his face in a shooting drill. It's a, he's, he's a fun guy to be around. Great, great guy. Well, I, I, that sounds great, and, uh, and, and you've been really fun to be around for this last uh, hour of talking to you on the basketball. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Uh, we'll have to do it again now. I want to hear more about, uh, you know, the next one we have to do is we're going to really break it down how the, the whole European system works a little bit more, because I think most people are pretty ignorant about, you know, the, the, how, you know the, system, the playoff system works and how they all play. So come on the show sure. again, and we'll do that. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds great. You know, it's, it's great for coaches and, and players there to, to study the game because there are some unbelievable coaches uh, here in Europe that are super creative. They're, they're brilliant. They're, they're high, high level thinkers of the game. And uh, it's, it's great for if I could go back to being a high school coach in the States, I'd study. You know, we always study the NBA game and the college game, but I'd study the European game a ton more. Uh, if I was a high school coach. Absolutely. Well, uh, thanks for coming on the show again, Coach, and uh, we'll have you on again. And uh, don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Coach? I'm in. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. 
dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves. This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win 25 grand. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participants. Participating stores.